0: As I've mentioned before, this podcast is made possible by contributions from listeners. Together, you've helped create more than 400 podcasts over the last six years. I'd like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for that. This show simply wouldn't be possible without you. I've recently been looking at my options because of some financial problems. As a result, I've talked to my friends, family, peers within our community, and also sought out other perspectives about what to do. I heard the same thing over and over again. If your audience continues to find the show valuable, then by the very principles of permaculture, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to earn a living wage. The problem right now is that I'm not. You know my record and thoughts on permaculture. I'm not a shovel-in-the-dirt kind of guy. I'm a scholar and an academic, a storyteller and a broadcaster. My job is to bring the Permaculture Podcast to you. My salary and the budget for the show depends on you. Will you support this work? I'm not looking to generate excess capital, but I can't work on an empty stomach either. If a mere one out of seven of my listeners dedicated a dollar a month, or an annual contribution of $20 to the show, I would be able to make a living wage. So I'm going to pause here for a moment and encourage you to visit slash support and invest in this renewable resource that I'm creating for our community. This is the Permaculture Podcast, I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1718, The Nomad Seed Project. In this episode, an in-person recording at the Boyd Big Tree Preserve Conservation Area in central Pennsylvania, my guest is Zach Elfers, the founder of Nomad Seed Project and someone who I've known for a long time through mutual friends and got to spend some time with both at Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence and at Seppi's place. Every time I've interacted with him or heard him speak about plants, native species, and kind of the space that we fill interacting with the wild world, I've always enjoyed them. There's a bit of a wandering philosopher and plant scholar in the way that he speaks, and talks about all of these things. So I wanted to have him on and use his project as a framework for that kind of a discussion. Today we wind up talking about geophytes and spring ephemerals, how those plants help to make us human, what we can do to restore habitat by using seed, and in that process dig into the nature of the Piedmont forests here in the eastern United States, particularly Pennsylvania and Appalachia, where we call home. But throughout, there's information that you can use wherever you are, so long as plants grow. So let's go ahead and get started with Zach as he explains the project, and we'll take the conversation from there. And as always, I'll join you again afterwards.
1: So here in the Eastern United States, especially here in Appalachia, we've had a very long history of colonization. As we both know, this region was one of the first uh, was one of the first landings of, of white people in this continent. So, there's a history of agriculture here going back to the 1500s mm-hmm. in some places, 1600s for most places, and the majority of our forests have been clear-cut at least once, so they're largely second growth. And, you know, long story short, we have very fractured habitats, we have very fractured ecosystems. And my big inspiration these days is in what could be called indigenous land management techniques, where we're managing lands to also include human habitat, but it's not necessarily agriculture, it's not necessarily horticulture, it's not necessarily domesticated, it's not necessarily wild, it's kind of this middle path. And so what I'm trying to do with the Nomad Seed Project is to track down a lot of these species that may have been featured much more prominently in our ecosystems in the past, and
0: may uh, be underrepresented these days because of the legacy of what's happened. How did you come to this project? Like, what is your background that led you to this? Was there a particular, like, childhood experience that connected you to the land? Was it the way that you were raised? Was it something that happened in college? It seems like most people have some kind of a formative experience that leads them in this direction.
1: I've always been a woodland. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't a hoodlum, I didn't, I, I mean, I grew up in a, in a fairly suburban, you know, environment. My family was never, you know, very affluent, you know, like, my first four years were living in a trailer in, in Delaware and, you know, so I, but, I, but I've, I've, I've seen a lot and, but it was always the woods which, which captivated me from a very early age and, you know, I would play cowboys and Indians or cops and robbers or whatever it was or just, you know, BB gun fights in the woods, you know, ducking behind logs and you know I remember walking with my father in the woods and he would catch garter snakes and I was always just like fascinated by everything and Mm -hmm. I I think in a lot of ways emotionally spiritually the woods became my home you know I, I never I guess I didn't form deep social bonds when I was younger with people with family but I did with the forest and with the animals and you know as I as I grew older and you know went to college and everything you know I started to expand my social horizons more and, and got away from that but uh, I've, I always returned to the woods you know I, I always try to return to that and I mean growing up in in Newark Delaware and you know near near Landenburg Pennsylvania and you know so kind of situated between Chester County Pennsylvania and Newcastle Delaware I've seen a lot of suburban development in my lifetime and there are patches of woods that I knew and loved as a child that don't exist anymore because they've been bulldozed and now they're subdivided. So that was pretty formative to me in that I didn't like what I was seeing, you know, and I, I wanted those spaces to be preserved even before I had an understanding of why. It just, on an emotional level, it, it hit me. And when I was in college, I I ultimately didn't finish, but... I was interested in philosophy and you know understanding how the mind worked and you know all these very intellectual abstract topics mm-hmm. and eventually I ended up through a series of experiences working on organic farms and just probing behind this question of what is the good life you know what is the right life to live and I wanted to have a good impact on the earth you know I didn't want to perpetuate a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the problems that we see in the world today. You know, a lot of, a lot of the hurt and the grief and the suffering. And, you know, I, I still don't have the answers. I don't think anybody does. But I was led in a direction that eventually, you know, I, I went from small-scale organic agriculture into the world of permaculture. And that was a revelation. But then, when I was in the world of permaculture, through some of our mutual friends, such as Ben Weiss, Wilson Alvarez, uh, and Dale Hendricks to a large degree. I was kind of brought into this new paradigm of rewilding, which still hasn't even been articulated. It's just, I feel like it's something that's in the air, and people talk about it from a lot of different angles, but as a land management technique, or as an actual way to interact with the world, I think that hasn't been articulated very well. So. My formative experiences, as far as the Nomad Seed Project goes, are Dale Hendrick's experiments in his woodland property, where he's been scattering ramp seeds and bluebell seeds since 2010. So as, as you know, the, uh, the ramps take seven years to mature. So um, this year and next year, he's going to have those first seeds from 2010 flower and set their own seed. And it's beautiful to see this degraded habitat where it's second-growth poplar trees, straight as arrows, growing very closely in an understory of multiflora rose, and there's this huge self-sustaining ramp patch now, you know, because we're doing the work of restoring the seed bank. So, with the Nomad Seed Project, I want to branch out and bring more species into kind of a similar treatment and, and see what can be done with our woodland spaces and you know, more than just our woodland spaces, but I'm really uh, interested in the idea of restoration from a rewilding standpoint. Some other formative experiences in this were when I was um, traveling through the West Coast I met with Fenicia Medrano who's a kind of an infamous rewilder in the Great Basin and while i never lived on the sacred hoop it was a it was a life-changing experience just to just to see and understand and it was like i had all these pieces but i hadn't put the puzzle together yet and then when i met her it clicked so what i'm trying to do with the nomad seed project is it's largely a, an emphasis on geophytes and geophytes are plants which live in environments where there's a seasonal um, instability so for example you see a lot of geophytes in mediterranean climates where you have a pronounced wet and then a dry season Mm -hmm. that's like for the west coast for example where it's very rainy in the spring and in the winter and there's almost no rain for three or four months during the summer months so if if you want to be a plant and survive in an environment like that you have to take advantage of all of the rain and the sunlight that comes to you put it into an underground storage root you're storing starches sugars things like that and then when the hard times come you can live off of your storage for a while so the geophytes tend to have very large tuberous organs rhizomes corms bulbs tubers all of that and I, I focused on the geophytes because I recognize that here in the eastern United States, we already have an abundance of nut trees, fruit trees, berries. But what, what the real missing component is in a lot of this is the geophytes, especially in our woodland understory. Now, another region in the world where geophytes are common is actually deciduous temperate forests. And that's the spring ephemerals, because there's a, only a limited window of sunlight before the leaves come in. So a lot of our spring ephemerals have adapted to the geophyte. Role and we don't often think of this region as you know, one of the premier geophyte regions in the world, but it is in some ways. Now, the other thing that's really important about geophytes is that they are what make us human and they are what kickstarted our evolution. So, it was a really uh, key moment in our human evolution. So, we're gonna let's, let's rewind the clock to about four or five million years ago. This is during the, uh, the Miocene grassland expansion. So, previously we had been primates that were arboreal. We were living in the trees and we were mostly confined to forested jungles where we subsisted on a diet largely of nuts and fruits and, and things like that, which are abundant tree crops. But the real key moment that allowed us to come onto the savannah was when we invented the digging stick. And by we, I mean our... <laughs> homo ancestors. And you know the none of the other high, higher primates did that. You know the, the baboons come on the savanna frequently, but they also spend their nights in trees or caves or things like that. You know they they they're not purely savanna dwelling creatures. But what we were able to do with the digging stick is we were able to basically put it in the ground and pry up these very large geophytic roots which were rich in carbohydrates and that became a foundation to our diet. It allowed us to come out of the trees and live among the grasses. So human beings and the grasses have a very intense relationship, because it's in these grasses that a lot of the geophytes grow, because they need sun, and grasses also have a relationship with fire, especially the warm season grasses. Uh, and you know, once we were on the savannah, then we began to persistence hunt, and we became trackers. and and a a hunting species in in addition to that, but it was, you know, geophytes paved the way. So I, I wanna bring a lot of geophytes back into our region.
0: Well, in geophytes, it sounds like also they kind of bridge that. I think of it from growing up with my family. We we still have those stories of the hungry times at the end of winter. And so it's important to plant things like radishes and other fast-growing foods to kind of bridge that gap. Because as soon as you can get seeds into the ground, they tend to be hardy. Mm-hmm. And they're something you can get to. And it sounds like geophytes within our... Natural environment are something that we can turn to for that because they provide rich sources of carbohydrates because they're the ephemerals that come before the trees leaf out that they fill this particular niche for a first spring's food source.
1: Absolutely, and if you think about it, even our our food sources today in agriculture, they're still geophytes: potatoes, mm. radishes, carrots. It, you know, they're, they're, they're all geophytes and, of course, these are domesticated crops that generally are ready within a year, within a single season. Mm-hmm. So many of our wild geophytes are on multi-year uh, cycles before they're large enough to harvest. But the advantage is that there's no input required, you know, and they take care of themselves, they're wild
0: plants, and you can have huge populations. With your project, one of the conversations that I'm following quite a bit within the rewilding community is the difference between people who are interested in kind of subsistence foraging and helping to manage populations so that they can then use them year after year after year versus some of now the financial or professional foragers who are going out to collect things like ramps and others in order to collect then foods and plants for their pocketbook. Where do you see your role in land management practices trying to kind of take care of yourself and the plants that you're putting out there are you taking any kind of steps to kind of hide what you're doing or to help manage or is it just part of educating people that if you go in and find a ramp path you can't take everything that's there
1: i think it's all of the above i mean I, i'm definitely secretive about these areas that i'm really focusing a lot of my efforts on because mm-hmm. it would break my heart if a uh, ramp forager came in and Undid all the work I, I did. But I, I'm kind of operating on the, the premise that the best defense is a strong offense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in Chester County, Pennsylvania, it's it's absolute madness during ramp season. You know, we've got a lot of ramps in the region. And by that, I mean we have some woodlands which are very extensive in their coverage of ramps, but there's a lot of development too, so there, there's not enough to meet the demand. And I can tell you for a fact that in during ramp season in Chester County, there's probably five to six thousand pounds of ramps every month that are being removed from Chester County alone for market foraging. That's a huge number. And many of these foragers, I mean, First of all, if you're removing that, it, many of them are removing a thousand dollars per forager per month. If you're removing that many, it's it's not ethical. But one thing I've noticed is that even the seasonality is messed up. You know, as soon as the ramps are coming out of the ground, people are digging it. even though the bulbs are still small and they haven't fattened up for the year. You know, people aren't waiting till later in the year. And there, there's things I've I've realized from my own interactions with this plant, such such as if you let the ramps mature. This is, would be in the window of about the last two weeks before the leaves die back. The roots are very firm in the ground at this point, and the bulbs are very big too. And there's a, there's a weak point between the roots and the bulb, which is that little nodule on the bottom of the onion. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the onions have this, where you can break off the bulb from that nodule, and the nodule will regrow. So, if you come out late in the season, you can pull the ramps just by hand and you'll hear a crack. The roots will stay in the ground because the, no- the nodule breaks off and you get the bulb at its largest when the leaf at its largest. And I've potted up some of the roots that are left behind to observe them over the years and they do grow back. It's, okay. not, it's not 100%, it's maybe 75%, 80%. But you know, if you want to talk about sustainable harvest, that's it. You know, it's not... A lot of ramp foragers who are ethical... will only harvest the leaves and you know I I applaud them in in their decision to do that but I don't want to be misunderstood in saying this but I think that we can enjoy our bulbs too. The other thing that I'm doing is I'm gathering lots of ramp seed so the the ramp seed matures uh, in this region around the middle of September and I'll go out to these patches my season is exactly opposite to the ramp foragers, they're out there in the spring, I'm out there in the fall, I'm gathering seed, and I'm trying to get as much of it as I can, you know, and many years I'm collecting close to a gallon of, of seed. Wow. And I, I take that and <laughs> I'm scattering it everywhere, right? So that, that's, that's the offense,
0: you know, okay. that's, that's
1: nature's offense. <laughs>
0: So it is, to, to borrow the, the language of MCAT Anderson, you're doing your best to tend that, those wild spaces that you're in. Yes. That, as you're harvesting the plants, that you're taking care of them so that there's a relationship between you and the landscape that you're working in. Yes. You mentioned earlier about indigenous practices. Are there particular sources that you're pulling from when you refer to that? Books you've read, people you've spoken with or learned from, or is it like through your own research and... The historical record or where does that kind of come from?
1: That's a great question. So there's a lot of ethnobotanical literature for indigenous lifeways in, in Western North America because there have still been uncontacted people in the 20th century in some of these places. So there, we, we have a much more privileged perspective of actually documenting what was happening and um, in some cases there's still living memory of this. Here on the East Coast, it's very different. And while there is ethnobotanical record of different aspects, there hasn't been that comprehensive study. That you know, for example, someone like M. Pat Anderson can write about the California Indians. She has way more information at her disposal by virtue of being in California than I would in Pennsylvania. So a lot of the work that I'm doing is coming from a plant-centric vantage point and I'm seeing what virtues the plants have and then kind of imagining that you know if I was an indigenous person living in this area and I had a relationship with this plant what it might look like but I don't necessarily have the corroboration of literature to say yes this is this is how the indigenous people were doing it you know it's kind of like reinventing the wheel and that's an unfortunate reality of the situation that we find ourselves in so I don't want to be mistaken as Saying that I am doing indigenous management techniques. Because I don't in a lot of ways we don't know what that was. I would say that this is one way
0: to do something that looks like it or resembles it or emulates it in spirit. It's a a reconstruction of potential best practices based on the gulf of time and space from when Those peoples who were native to these regions were able to actually practice in that way before we have the colonization and everything else that drove them off of the land and now trying to return to these spaces and do the best that we can in the modern era. In a lot of ways, the uh, the ghost
1: of these old practices is still evident in the landscapes. So, for example, you know, we had the chestnut, which filled this amazing niche in our eastern Appalachian forests, and now it's gone. So that's left behind, you know, this this ecological niche, and we can see its impression that's left behind. So, in some ways, we can kind of use these these pieces to put together a story of what it may have been like. I want to bring up an example of some species that have probably been distributed by humans. So for example, there's uh, Apios americana, the American groundnut, also known as Hopinus to the Lenni Lenape, and a whole host of other names, but it seems to be a plant that was originally native to the southeastern region and to the, to the deep south, where many of the strains that are still down there are what we call diploid and they produce viable seeds and they seed themselves abundantly. It's a wild plant. But if you come up north to Pennsylvania and New England and stuff like that, a lot of the groundnut which we find in the wild, is actually triploid. Mm. And because of that, it hardly ever sets viable seed. It's maybe one in a thousand chance that each seed will achieve viability because the chromosomes don't line up. And it seems that it's a semi-domesticated crop. Mm. and When people were down south, they noticed that there was this mutant, and because it was triploid and it didn't set seed, it was able to concentrate more energy on its roots. So the triploid variants of groundnut, they run more, they they mature faster, the roots are a little bit bigger, but they only propagate vegetatively. So here we are, you know, 400 years after colonization, and there's still triploid groundnuts growing in the wild. So that's like the ghost of human handprint on Mm -hmm. our
0: landscape. In this work do you see any struggles because of the way that our forests have changed? This is nothing like it used to be. You know, we don't use fire management anymore, but we should be. Like, even foresters are talking about what they should be doing as best practices, but because of various rules and regulations in the way that we use human habitat, because we like to big, build big houses in the woods, whether we're here in Pennsylvania or we see in the hills of California, that we can't use some of those techniques. So are you having to adjust your practices based on the modern forest, or are you just taking the forest as it is?
1: I want to approach that question from two angles. One is that a lot of the work that I'm doing is repopulating the seed bank of these woodland understory plants. And in a lot of cases, you know, if if I'm planting Harbinger of Spring in the understory of a woodland, it doesn't really care so much if the canopy is a maple one or if it's an oak one above it. But on the other hand, I've been doing a lot of research about what the ecology was like before Europeans were here. And there's a really informative book by Reed Noss, who was with the uh, University of Florida, an ecologist. He wrote Forgotten Grasslands of the South, and he talks about a lot of this stuff and says that when Europeans first came to this continent, most of the Piedmont forest had an understory of warm season grasses. It wasn't like we think of, where it was just like closed canopy, lots of leaves. You know, it, it, was, it was grassy. And that, that was the legacy of fire management. Um, in in more ways than one. The the warm season grasses are the ones which grow at the height of the summer and they're dormant in the spring and the fall and they're often standing and they're brown and they're dead. You can hold a match to those grasses and they'll go up like paper. And this is how we do fire management in our meadow spaces for example. So in a, in a forest context, that's, that's how you get that clean burn that just sweeps along the understory. We can't even do fire management anymore in these forests because mm-hmm. there's been a mesification, where it's tended towards more moist conditions, different canopy dominance and, and all of that. So yeah, the, this, the forest we see now is totally different from the one that, that was here. And in a lot of ways, I like to favor native species because that is the legacy of this landscape that's the ancestral lineage there's a lot of cooperation between native species and well I'll just say between native species whether it's you know like for example cooperation between plants and insects Doug Tallamy at the University of Delaware has done a lot of research showing that oak trees have relationships with you know hundreds of species of Lepidoptera and beetles and you know all, all kinds of stuff and you take in a tree of heaven to a forest like this and it doesn't participate like that so in a lot of ways i've come to understand what it means to be wild as something that is highly cooperative and that's kind of opposite to the the
0: mainstream perception of wild and that was something from the mapc A, where i know that kind of you challenged, I think, in many ways, the audience with your initial response, and then I pushed back against you about you know, some of the ideas that are talked about within the permaculture community about native to when and native to where and some of these other things because of the way that plants move and you know, we've had these exchanges of seeds and plants and whatnot. But to turn that into a, more of a question is can you share with us more of your idea of natives versus non-natives, invasives versus non-invasives? for those people who haven't heard the MAPC dialogue?
1: Well, I don't buy the hardline distinction between native versus invasive species. Um, I favor natives personally. I'm a huge fan of natives, and they're the basis of my understanding of ecology and botany because you know, I'm going into these spaces where, which, which are largely populated by native plants. You know, even today, you know, the garlic mustard is just like you know the tip of the iceberg it's it's just like one little little hair on the cat you know but all the rest is is native still so it's it's a spectrum it's not black and white there are many species that have naturalized around here and that seem to be fairly cooperative Um, one interesting story is the multiflora rose Mm -hmm. now do you know um the Viri thrush it has this extremely beautiful song it's it's my favorite song from a songbird and it, it almost sounds like a vortex of music through a metal pipe it's just like it's just like this swirling helical song i can't i can't really describe it you just have to hear it look it up it's the very thrush with two e's and it was it's historically been a mountain species in the east coast and it, and it seemed to nest in areas where there was a lot of mountain laurel or um, rhododendron, like these thickets. You know, it needs that dense underbrush so that it, it, can, it can nest safely. Um, as soon as multiflora rose started to grow everywhere in, in our Piedmont in the 50s, the viri came out of the mountains and now its main breeding ground is in the Piedmont. So, you know, you can go to White Clay Creek State Park in Newark, Delaware, and you can hear viris all day long. And it's, it's really beautiful. And this is a bird that w- hasn't historically been in the region. So, you know, if you want to attack the multiflora rose, it's like, yeah, we, we, can, we can say that this isn't historically a plant that's here. But you're going to remove the viri habitat, too, if you remove the multiflora rose. The other thing to realize is that a lot of these so-called invasive species are being planted by birds, for example. Well, you know, where do you think multiflora rose comes from? Mm-hmm. It comes from bird feces. Also, our landscape is changing. There's no doubt about it. You know, climate change is more than a reality. You know, it's a question of adapt or, or die at this point. Mm-hmm. And how are we going to respond to these changes? And there are a lot of people doing work talking about novel ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Um, Emma Maris has written a nice book about that called the rambunctious garden saving nature in a a post-wild world and uh, we can't be too we can't hold on too much to the past because that's all changing but I think it's still helpful to have that natives first perspective and then you know (laughs) the other thing that's important to recognize in all of this is that oftentimes where we see the most invasive species is where the habitat has been the most degraded by human beings. Mm -hmm. So it's not the plant's fault and I think that that is a problem in conservation, to put it bluntly, because there are a lot of wild spaces that are managed with tons of glyphosate to manage the invasive species problem. Now this is tied into a lot of institutional bureaucracy and things like that. Oftentimes it's more conducive to get a grant when you have something like invasive species removal with glyphosate, but that is perpetuating um, a lot of the degradation that we see, and it's changing trophic relationships. For example, glyphosate locks up a lot of minerals in the soil, and it also is very damaging to fungal networks. So if you're going into an old growth forest to remove garlic mustard with glyphosate, you know, you could be damaging the trees in ways that aren't seen now but may be seen down the road. So I think in some ways we just have to let go a little bit and accept that some of our old-growth forest is gonna have
0: garlic mustard in the understory. It's just the reality of the current situation. There's no way to really get around it. We're living in the Anthropocene, which I really like the way
1: E.O. Wilson talks about it, the arena scene, the age of loneliness. We're losing a lot and I think part of Taking responsibility for ourselves as human beings is recognizing that we have been part of a lot of these degradations. And if we're to move forward, we need to bring in the age of restoration. We need to be
0: repairing and restoring our ecosystems. If someone wanted to get started with something like their own Nomad Seed project or restoration, what are some places that you would recommend? What are some resources to connect people to the kinds of things that you think that they should know in order to do this?
1: Well, the goal that I'm doing with the Nomad Seed project is mainly educational. There's two motives here. One is that you know, as I'm traveling to track down certain plants and I'm gathering seed, I want to make that seed available to other people, other growers. A portion of the seed is being grown in a nursery where it can be propagated throughout the future and there will be stock for continued rewilding projects. But a portion of that seed is also being actively rewilded by myself and some others. But the the most important goal is educational. So if you go on my website, nomadseed.com, I'm putting up a series of articles which are plant profiles, and it'll look at the plant in all of its life cycle, hopefully with high-quality pictures. I'll show pictures of it in flower, pictures of it in seed, you know, how to use it as a food source, how to harvest it sustainably or regeneratively, and I'm also including general windows of time when seeds can be harvested. So what what I want to share with people is, you know, the horticultural techniques that I was able to learn through my mentors and basically make that public knowledge. So, you know, when it's ramp seed harvesting season in mid-September and you're, you love ramps and you know where your patch is, you can go out to that patch and you can gather those seeds and then you can start other patches. For example, giant Solomon seal. You know, you can go out in mid-September and gather all the Solomon seal berries and you can distribute those to other woodland patches. And, you know, that's another wonderful food source. It's like woodland asparagus, you know? <laughs> And I, I think also, my motivation is building a backdoor out of the private property system. For example, if you're in a neighborhood, in a suburban development, and all of you have a shared woodlot, what a wonderful gift to your neighbors to go out there and plant ramps, to plant Solomon Seal, to plant Virginia Bluebells, to plant Harbinger of Spring, you know, all these things which, even if they're not foods like Trillium, you know, they're beautiful and they're ecologically useful. and that is the restoration work so what i what i'm doing is kind of like do-it-yourself restoration and i want to show other people that you can do that too this isn't something this can be citizen science you know we don't have to leave it all up to professional science organizations and also on that note you know i i feel like in my life i'm at a bit of a crossroads because i would like to take this work to a more mainstream audience and you know open more doors and and all of that and i'm I don't have credentials. So I'm trying to figure out all that stuff. But You look like there was a thought there, so I was giving you... (laughs) Well, I was thinking about fear and love. And I think that there's a lot of fear regarding our ecosystems and regarding the environment. And it's it's just, you know, I I understand it. And I experience it sometimes, too. You know, we have not only the specter of climate change, but there's this personal fear where someone says, Well, I don't want to mess with that environment, because I'm afraid that I'm going to mess it up. And through this work, I hope to show that it doesn't have to be that way, that we can make positive changes to our woodlands. And it's such a joy to see these things germinating. Side note, the reason I like to focus on seed is because then you're leaving the important choices up to Mother Nature. There's, there's several reasons to focus on seed. One is that it's efficient. It costs a lot of money to buy everything in nursery plugs. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of time to go in and plant stuff. And you know, that, that, that's fine. I, I do some of that work too. But by starting from seed, it's, you, it requires a lot more patience because it can be many years before you see the, the results of your labor. But that seed is only germinating if you've sown it in a suitable place. That seed is only growing up if it's in a suitable place. So, it, you know, it, it's, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm removing responsibility from it. It's more co-creative. It's more letting go. It's more of a mindset of letting go than it is of, I have a thousand plugs of ramps and I'm going to plant them on this hillside. And if 50% of them die, I'm going to be heartbroken
0: I like that. Cause I'm thinking through about a conversation about outliers. You know, sometimes you can find something that doesn't seem like it should fit there, but if it's growing there, then it's there for a reason. It found some, you know, something about that particular environment, that patch of earth, that meets its needs. And that with seed you can do the same thing, because even if you're scattering the seed and it's being eaten by the birds and the creatures that are there, it's allowing the ecosystem to take care of this, that you want to encourage these things, but you're doing it in a way that more closely replicates the natural processes than to go in with kind of like an arrogant restoration perspective of we're going to burn everything down and now plant new trees or something like that, which I've seen in projects. You know, Dawa Ryan talks about that in her book. But again, this is just like kind of me developing my thoughts in this because my next question is actually just for your final thoughts with everything you shared today.
1: I think my final thoughts are that I'd like to talk about some of the species that I've really been interested in in, and in studying and rewilding. So, I've talked about ramps a lot, and Virginia bluebells are another one that I work with, especially in floodplains, but I'm really interested in Camassia siloides. It's, uh, it's, it's an eastern camas. So, in the uh, western United States, especially the Pacific Northwest, there are plants in the genus Chamecia, um, which are known as camas, um, they fed Lewis and Clark on their expedition, saved them from starvation mm-hmm. on the YP Prairie in uh, in Idaho, and they uh, they have a bulb much like an onion, and beautiful white, blue, purple flowers, and they in the in the West Coast they'll often be in valley areas and hundreds of thousands of acres just blooming, pure blue in May or June, and. The, uh, the bulbs can be dug up and slow-cooked to turn the fibrous inulin into a fructose which is more easily digestible. Once they're, they're roasted, they can be dehydrated and basically taken with you wherever they can store indefinitely and it's a, it's a total staple food. Oftentimes, once they were dehydrated, they were then ground into flour for baking the bread or cakes. And a lot of people are familiar with this plant on the west coast, but there's actually two native Camassia species east of the continental divide, east of the Rockies. There's Camassia siloides and there's Camassia angusta, which is the southern prairie camis. And what's cool about the Camassia siloides is that it's, it's a woodland plant. It's adapted to that spring ephemeral niche. So when I was traveling this spring tracking down a lot of these plants, I would go to areas of Georgia or Tennessee or Alabama or Illinois where this kamacea was still growing natively and it it'll fill out the woodland like ramps in some places. Now Kamacia soloides is native to parts of western Pennsylvania. It tends to be west of the Appalachians. But it's not here so much on the eastern side. But it does well here. You know, it can do fine. I've seen it in people's gardens. There's actually a preserve in eastern North Carolina which is loaded with Camacea soloides, and it's a bit of a puzzle for um, for the the botanists and the geologists and all of that, and they they have explanations. And, you know, I'm not going to make any statement on that, but they can do well here on the east side of the Appalachian. So, you know, I want to paint a picture of where we can go with this restoration work that includes human habitat without being a detriment to the habitat of all the other woodland beings around here. So we could have hillsides covered in Camaceae solides. We could have hillsides covered in ramps. We could have hillsides covered in uh, giant Solomon seal. We could have harbinger of spring, which is like this little bulb plant in the parsley family along our streams, our wooded streams beneath, uh, beneath rocky bluffs and you know, kind of like lowland bottomland areas, really moist areas. We, we could have all these, these things totally under a woodland canopy. And I, I think that that is, is a, for anybody interested in food security, that's something that's worth pursuing. And that's, when I talk about the, the backdoor out of the private property system, I mean, that, that's kind of what I have in mind. Um, I think that entering this age of instability and uncertainty, we're gonna need every solution there is. You know, this isn't about you know there's one size fits all for everything. Everybody's doing their part and it's wonderful and it's beautiful. Yeah, you know, I love all the people who are returning to small-scale agriculture and, and you know, homestead, organic farming mindset. From my perspective, I don't have access to land ownership. I'm blessed to have land access through some friends. But you know, from my perspective, I'm still seeing the feudalism of this system where, you know, you have to be someone to some degree in society to have that land ownership and then you can do what you want with it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But what about the people who can't afford that or the people who can't, you know, exist within that system? I, I think my my biggest criticism of permaculture is not, is is a constructive criticism. It's just that we shouldn't be so insular in our perspective that we don't look beyond the boundaries of our private property. I think we should be utilizing everything that's given to us, you know, make that homestead beautiful, put in all these trees, all these plants, but then once you have this established, you have a lot of seed, you have a lot of germplasm, and you can start to move that out, you know, and, you know, put it in spaces for your community, like like shared woodlots in suburban developments, or you could just trade the seed with people, or you know, the, the, the possibilities are endless, but I, I think that that would be my final message to take away, you know, it, this isn't about, like, changing your life so that you, you're living in the woods all the time and planting wildflowers. I, I was joking with a friend. I was like, I don't know how to explain what I do. I mean, it just comes out like I live in the woods and plant wildflowers. <laughs> you know, it's just like if, if we took even just a day out of the year to gather seed, and scatter that in a new area that's that's a huge impact we're changing reality because everybody is subject to those changes total strangers are going to walk through that woodland in the future and they're going to see these plants and it's because you found the resolve and the initiative to be a part of
0: this beautiful process well thank you for taking the time to meet me here at the preserve and to have this conversation out and about in the world thanks for having me scott it's been a pleasure And that was Zach Elfers of Nomad Seed Project. You can find out more at nomadseed.com and also at his Patreon page, which I've included a link to in the show notes, as I was one of his early supporters because I really like the work that he's doing and think that it's something worth checking out. One quick correction that Zach wanted me to make is that when he was talking about ramps and market foragers, what he meant to say of what's being taken out by those foragers was per week not per month, so that ramp foragers are collecting 5,000 to 6,000 pounds to an amount averaging about $1,000 worth of ramps per forager every week in those areas that he mentioned. And it amazes me how much market foraging has grown, something that I wasn't aware of until this conversation with Zach today and through a couple of articles that I've seen posted on Facebook and elsewhere. Because I was exposed to this idea, I don't know, six or seven years ago in an Atlantic or Rolling Stone article. I went looking but couldn't find it. About a fellow who was doing kind of field to table by foraging for fresh ingredients. And bringing them then to restaurants for them to use in their seasonal dishes. So that they could have something that was truly ultra local. And that particular forager, he was doing everything from going to the beaches to collect seaweed. And up into the forests several hundred miles away to collect mushrooms for restaurants at the foothills of those mountains. But what do you think about what Zach shared today? Are you someone who saves seed or propagates plants when you're out in the wild and helps attend to those spaces? Is there something about this that speaks to you? And if so, how would you apply it to where you are and the work that you're doing? Are you interacting with Zone 4 and Zone 5 within the permaculture framework? Or are you focused mostly on Zone 0 one, two, and three. As always, I'd love to hear from you and know what projects and things you are working on and what you're doing in the world with this practice of permaculture. So feel free to get in touch with me. Show at thepermaculturepodcast.com is my preferred email address. Phone number is 717-827-6266. That's a Google Voice number. So feel free to leave voicemail and I'll get in touch with you as soon as I can. You can also drop something in the post because letters are really a great way to remind me of this work and the impact that it has on you and the broader world. It gives me something to touch that comes from your hand. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, which I'm not quite sure what that's going to be yet. There's quite a lot in the queue as I've recorded five hours of interviews so far in the last week as this episode comes out plus some other new projects and things on the horizon. Thank you for being a part of this community and this show for so long. Spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.